And I want us to take a look at um, John 4, the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. People are always saying, you have to make the Bible relevant for today. We need to make the Bible relevant. Well, I've got news for those people. You don't have to make the Bible relevant. The Bible is relevant. You don't have to make it that way. It's the most relevant book there is. It meets the needs of every generation and in every time. More than any other book, the Bible is relevant to man's need. It's a book that never fails. And so we have all of these books about the Bible. They tell us a lot of things about the Bible. Some of those books have to do with winning souls. If you go into the uh, bookstores, you'll see uh, shelves of books on plans and methods for personal soul winning. And you have all these things, and they're all great. But chapter 4 of the Gospel of John is the most remarkable, flawless plan for winning someone to Christ you'll find in any book. So if you took chapter 4 of the Gospel of John and just followed that marvelous, flawless plan for winning souls, you'd have a better book than you'd find in any bookstore, including the Baptist bookstore. And I mean, that's next to... You know, that's next to Jerusalem. I mean, a Baptist bookstore. This, this text, this chapter, takes place in a kind of an unusual setting. It's kind of a surprise, will it, really? That you're going to find a master soul winner in this place, at this time, leading someone to faith in Him. It's kind of a surprise philosophically. Verses 1 and 2 say that, that the Pharisees recognized that Jesus was gathering more followers than John. Now, they could handle John, but they were having a tough time with Jesus. And they didn't want him to get too many followers, and so they, they were aware that Jesus was becoming or posing a threat. Jesus saw that, and so he left out of there. He split. He didn't want the cross to come before the cross was to come. Philosophically, strange time for Jesus to win this, to deal with this woman in a personal soul-winning encounter. Geographically, it's kind of a surprise. It took place in Samaria. Now, Samaria was a, a little uh, country that was kind of sandwiched between Judea and Galilee. Judea and Galilee were the Jewish communities, and right in between them was Samaria. Samaria was born in an ethnic conflict. It is horrendous. It's indescribable, the hatred the Jew had for the Samaritan. And so when he traveled from uh, Judea up to Galilee, he wouldn't set his feet in, on Samaritan soil. He went around it, up the, up the River Jordan. He wouldn't even look at one of these Samaritans. He so hated them. Now, it, Scripture says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. He really didn't have to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. No other Jew did. But he went through Samaria in order that he might demonstrate that his gospel was to permeate all men, all nations, not just the Jews. He wanted to demonstrate that his love was extended, to be extended to everybody. That's why he went through Samaria. 
Now let me tell you what it's like here, what this is going to be like, Jesus in Samaria. It'd be like a sheriff in, from Savannah, Georgia, with his uniform on, you know, Savannah, right across here, walking down the streets of Harlem on Saturday night. That'd be what it'd be like to go through Samaria like Jesus did. Personally, the setting is kind of a surprise found in verse 6. He goes to this well, and he's thirsty, and he's hot, and, he and he's tired, and hungry. And so he sends the disciples into town, to Hardy's, to get something to eat, or to the nearest Safeway store, and brings back something to eat. And he sits there on the well, in this Samaritan, near this Samaritan village. And there comes this woman to him with a sordid past. Now the Jews had a, a binding law, the Pharisees had a law that no Jew was to speak to a woman outside, out on the streets, out of doors, not even your wife or your mother. And it was just unheard of that a man would speak to a woman, much less a Samaritan woman. I mean, it's just incredible. It was, it was absolutely um, unbelievable that that would happen. As a matter of fact, there were uh, some Pharisees, a group of the Pharisees known as the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. True story. And the way they got their bruises and their, their wounds, they wouldn't, even, they wouldn't look at a woman if they met her on the streets. And so they closed their eyes. He's always <laughs> running into posts and into buildings. And they were called the bruised and bleeding. It's exactly the opposite today. I remember... Uh, Going from uh, off the farm, I was in the second grade, I went off the farm to Dallas, Texas. First time I'd been out of Knox County. And I went with my friend Tommy Ratliff. He was a kind of a cosmopolitan, cool dude. His parents grew up in Dallas and he'd lived there in his early years. And he knew Dallas like no other second grader. So he took me to Dallas and we were going to see the, the, it's a true story, we're going to see the SMU Mustangs and the Baylor Bears play. And we were walking down the streets of Dallas, and they had this big uh, picture of this woman on this wall, this building. And I remember I was walking along, and I looked at that woman and ran into a street light. That's a true story. Well, these uh, the bruised and bleeding Pharisees, it was exactly the opposite. They were... They would close their eyes and refuse to look at a woman and certainly never to speak with one. Now here's Jesus talking to a woman. Incredible. Outside he's talking to a woman and a Samaritan to boot and a woman with a sordid past. Now let's just kind of peek in tonight by means of uh, kind of satellite and I want us to just watch this thing transpire. I want us to see this conversation that Jesus had with this woman, a marvelous demonstration of leading someone to faith. Now Jesus appeals to her. He makes six, six different appeals to her. And she comes back in, with six different responses. Notice it now. First, in verse 7, He appeals to her kindness. He just says to her, Give me a drink. Now, if you know anything about human nature, you know that one of the ways to break through when you have a strained, rela strained relationship is to appeal to someone's kindness. There is a need in everybody to be needed. And so Jesus just kind of appeals to her kindness. You know, give me a drink. 
Like, um, would you hand me that? Would you be kind enough to reach that to me? Just appealing to her kindness. Her response is defensive. And she says, how is it that you ask of me a Samaritan? You take your pencil and underline how many times that word is used in verses 6 through 9. Samaritan. Don't you know I'm a Samaritan? And she's digging him just a little bit. How is it that you, a Jew, would talk to a Samaritan? Speak kindly to a Samaritan. Ask a kindness of a Samaritan. Sometimes your kindness backfires. I heard a guy tell about one time he was riding on a commuter bus at one of these airports and he, where you leave your rent car and you catch a commuter bus to the train and uh, to the plane. He said it was full and this woman got on. He had his seat. He thought he'd offer his, his, his place. He didn't know she was a woman from the women's liberation movement. He said, I got up and said, would you like to have my seat? He said, she said, why no? I can stand up. You know, the problem, she said, well, you male chauvinist, you think we're weak? We can't stand, I can stand up. Said the guy kind of next to him, kind of nudged, said, you can't win, buddy. I mean, you can't be kind to anybody. (laughs) Jesus did not retaliate. Look at the second appeal. He appeals to her curiosity. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God... Now, watch this marvelous appeal to her curiosity. What's this gift he's talking about? You know, when your heart is hungry to be loved, doesn't it stir you when somebody starts talking about love? And when you're impoverished, as this woman was impoverished, doesn't it strike a bell, ring a bell of curiosity to hear him talk about a gift? What is this gift? And if you knew who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. When you're a woman like her who is trying to get to know some man, to know some intimacy, here's a man who tells, who is saying to her, if you knew who I was, if you knew me, he appeals to her curiosity. Her response is sarcasm. She's been rejected enough. Look at verses 11 and 12. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Um, Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. You greater than Jacob? I think it probably had been there. We'd have probably got into this long debate about who the real owner of the well was. You know, we get sidetracked. Not Jesus. Third, he appealed to her desire. Look at what he says in verses 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. Now, he knew this about her. He knew she was a thirsty woman. And he recognized that her thirst was for more than just physical water. Isn't yours? Charles Howard told about being in his hotel in the city. He said, I never went in anywhere that I didn't try to talk to somebody about Christ. And so he said, right on the first floor elevator, started up to my room on the 12th floor. He said, this old drunk got on the elevator, first floor. He said, the old drunk kind of staggered in, looked at me and said, buddy, you know where I can get a drink? And Charles Howard said, I looked at him and said, sure, in my room you can get a drink. 
He said, the old, the old drunk said, you know, he thought he'd found a buddy. So he put his arm around me, breathed that alcohol breath. He said, glad nobody struck a match. That elevator just blown up. He said, a guy looking at me, he said, hey, buddy, I'm going to school your room and get a drink. He said, I reached in my shirt pocket and I pulled out my New Testament and I opened it chapter 4 of John. I put it under his nose and I said, if you drink of the water I'll give, you'll never thirst again. He said about that time, the elevator stopped at the floor where the drunk was to get off. He kind of staggered off, cussing me. He said he spat on me. The elevator door stopped, shut. He said I reached in my pocket, pulled out my handkerchief, not to wipe the dirty spittum from my face, but to wipe the tears from my eyes. He said I hadn't even noticed that Negro elevator operator standing over in the corner till she touched me on the shoulder with her hand and when I looked into her face he said I thought I saw thirst as big as my hand and she said pardon me sir but could you tell me where I could get some of that living water now Jesus understood that this woman had a thirst that was deeper than for water that was drawn from that well but she didn't hear in his tone spiritual sounds And she didn't hear words or terms like eternal and living. We just take for granted that people understand what we're talking about when we preach, when we use those terms, when we, when we, when we, you know, let them just roll off of our lips. And so this is her response. She said, I'd like to have a place where I could uh, not have to work, not have to uh, go and draw. She failed to see that her thirst was for something deeper than a surface need. And so forth, he, he, he appeals to her personal interest. Look at verse 16. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. Now, did Jesus know the situation? Of course He did. He was like an attorney that has this portfolio of information, and He just kind of drops this question that he knows the answer to. You know, uh, go call your husband. Didn't he know she had no husband? Of course he did. He was just kind of, you know, uh, drawing the net. He was just kind of bringing her to the point of response. And this is her response. She responded by changing the subject. Look at what she did. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have said well, I have no husband. She, she changed the subject. I guess there's a lot of us who have these secrets that we want nobody to know about that are, thank God, covered by the blood. Jesus, in, in the fifth place, verse 17, He appeals to her conscience. Now watch this. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have said well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, This you have said truly. Now I'm impressed by the fact that Jesus didn't condemn her. You know, He didn't um, scold her. He didn't preach a sermon on adultery or in... Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say, you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She responded with a controversial issue. Has that ever happened to you? 
I've been out witnessing a lot of times, sharing the gospel, and you get down to bringing a person to a decision of, of accepting Christ, they'll say, I don't know if I, you really believe there is a hell, or, or they'll say, uh, uh, you think that this is really God's Word, or is that just man's Word? And they'll bring in these controversial issues. And Jesus, fifthly, sixthly, finally, appeals to her will, and He says in verse 21, Woman, believe me. Woman, believe me. He appeals to her will. It's interesting that one's trusting in Christ is a matter of the will. It's not a matter of one's emotion. Emotion is involved in it. It's a matter of the will. It's a matter of a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. He said, I want you to believe me. I want you to trust me as an act of the will. And he says three things about that. He says, first of all, that earthly location is unimportant in eternity. He said, doesn't matter where you worship, in this mountain somewhere else. He says, secondly, that the object of worship is ultimately important. He's saying we must worship God. It's the Lord that we must worship. And then he says that God seeks true worshipers. He not only allows us to worship Him, He seeks us. Now this is her response. Her response is delay. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Well, it's, it's, it's the sharpest arrow in the Satan's quiver. Delay. I want to wait about. I want to wait a while. I'm not ready to commit tonight. I'm, I want to wait. Now all... Of these steps, you'll find every personal soul winning interview. Now look at verse 27. The disciples come back. At this point, at this point, His disciples came and they marveled that He had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? Now why didn't they ask these questions? Well, they weren't interested in that right then. They, they were hungry. I mean, uh, you know, the ham and cheese is going to get cold. Um, we, we got to eat, you know. They weren't thinking about this woman who was there dealing with Christ in an encounter of salvation. They had other things to think about. They had to eat. And so the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Now, I want us to skip past that. I want us to look at the reaction of the Samaritans. Now, now, now skip down to verse 39 and catch that. And from that city, men of the Samaritan, many of the Samaritans believed in Him because of the word of the woman, uh, the word of the woman who testified, He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Now some people are going to believe because of your word. And many are going to believe because of his word. And verse 42, And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, if you've got a pencil, I want you to underline these words. 
In verse 9, she calls him a Jew. In verse 15, she calls him sir or lord, a, 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 a formal greeting word. In verse 19, she calls him prophet. In verse 25, she calls him Messiah. In verse 42, he's called the Savior of the world. Now, now let's draw the picture and bring it together. Here is this Christ going into Samaria, breaking all kinds of... Uh, you know, traditions and farms and portico, and he encounters this woman, and step by step he brings her to the conclusion that he is the Savior of the world. Now what about these disciples? I want us to go back and pick up them, beginning of verse 31. In the meanwhile, the disciples were requesting him, saying, Rabbi, let's eat. I mean, let's get rid of us. We're hungry. Let's eat. Any cooks here tonight that feel like it? All they want to do is eat. You know. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. I have that which sustains me that's better than food. The disciples therefore were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Their eyes are completely on the physical. And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white for harvest already. And some commentator says that probably all these white-robed people were coming out of the village of Sychar. And he says, look at this field that's white unto harvest. Don't you see that there are hundreds of people just like this woman who are perishing with thirst? Don't you understand that there is a, a city that's hungry for that which is deeper than physical food? Don't you see this multitude of lost people? Do you? Already who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal for the etern for life eternal. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. Now what was wrong with these disciples? Let me give you four things. When I describe this, I'm describing every single one of us here tonight who is not engaged in personal evangelism. Number one, they were turned off by the eternal. They saw him talking to a woman and that was offensive to them. They were turned, they were, I said eternal, I mean external. They were turned off by the external. Now, now, when you see people, do you really see them? Or do you judge them when you look at them? Are you turned off by the external? I mean, when you see that, you know, street urchin or that poor person or that um, person with a sordid past, does that, does that turn you off or does it cause you to feel for them a desire to see them saved? They were turned off by the external. All they saw was a man doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing, talking to a woman outdoors. Secondly, 
they were over-involved in the so-called necessities of life. I mean, fixing meals and keeping schedules and making a living. They were over-involved in the so-called necessities of life. They were just too busy making a living. Does that sound like anybody you know? I mean, I got a meal to fix. I got a schedule to keep. I got a living I got to make. I don't have time to go down there and visit and win souls. I got to make money. I mean, who's going to feed my family if I don't do that? Third, they just simply put it off. He said, don't you say four, yet four months? I'll do it one of these days. When I get my schedule worked out, I'll, 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 I'll enter that soul winning class. When I get some time, uh, in four months, I'm going to do it. I'm going to have everything where I can do it in four months. He said, already the fields are white under harvest. And when a field is white under harvest, you better get it thin or it's lost forever. And fifthly, they never got specific regarding Jesus. They never got specific regarding Him. They talked around Him all the time. Have you ever noticed that? If you're a salesman and you went out to sell something, eventually you're going to have to get specific about that product. These disciples, to the very end, never really got specific about Jesus. They were always talking in generalities about Him. Who is this man? What, is it? what kind of guy is this? Now the application, and I'm quitting. Somebody said, people on the front line never complained about the food. Now what he's talking about is that, you know, these soldiers out, you know, in, in combat, people on the front line never complained about the food because they were engaged in a life and death battle. Now what, that, what he meant by that was, that when you're doing the main business of God, you don't, you're not going to have time to complain about the church. I, had, I heard uh, Landrum Level say one time, he, got it, he was pastor of this church, and all they did was fuss. I mean, they griped and grumbled and fussed all the time. And he said, I just stamping out one fire after another all the time. Everybody's fighting at each other's throat. He said, I decided, he said, I'll tell you what, folks, you can go on and fuss all you want to. I'm going to get out and win people to the Lord. He said, I just let them fuss. And I just got out and I, every day I tried to win somebody to Christ. He said, you know what happened? One or two began to do it with me. One or two began to follow me. And then others and others. And he said, when we got to the main business of winning people to the Lord, all the fussing in the church just disappeared. When you're on the front lines, you don't gripe about the food because you're in a life and death struggle. Now, folks, if you're not out at some well at Syker, if you're not engaged in trying to win people to Christ, you're not at the main business of doing what God's called us to do. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the blessing of Your Word. It reminds us day by day, so relevant, what we ought to be doing, of the thirst of people, of the hunger of people, how we've gotten sidetracked on so many things. They're really not that important. And I pray, God, that you'll help us to see the thirsty, the hungry, the fields that are white and do something about it. Because I pray in Jesus' name for His sake.
Now, the, the invitations are three, three in our church. We invite people to come to receive Jesus Christ. He said, I'm the living water. I'm the bread of life. I am the life. Invite you to come and accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, trusting Him. Second invitation is for you to join the church as God leads you to place your life in the fellowship of First Baptist Church. Or thirdly, to rededicate yourself, to walk closer to God, to do more perfectly His will. Well, let's sing a stanza or two, the invitation for you to come. Let's come while we stand.